The scripture reading this morning is found in John 1, 1 to 3 and 14. John 1, 1 to 3 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The good news about God, the Trinity, and um, uh, I wanted to talk about our doctrines uh, in our Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now we have 28 doctrines. <laughs> and uh, it's an interesting story to even discover those 28. Some of you maybe not even know what they all are. But it's a concern of mine that everything that we do is righteousness by grace. Very important that we understand these things. I think oftentimes they're not understood that way. And when they aren't, we are, they're, they're, there's nothing that draws people to them. Not even, and there's nothing transformatory in them. And uh, also, it's, 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 my, uh, it's my passion that, uh, that somehow we be able to, uh, not only be able to state that and point out how they direct us to God and how they tell us about God, but that we will also be able to get more enthusiastic about sharing. So here we go, starting with the first three. Uh, the first three statements in our doctrinal beliefs declare, can you hear me when I turn my head? I guess I need that wire. I got it. Uh, declare that we believe God is three beings, Father, Son, Jesus and Holy Spirit. The first one says, The true and living God, the first person of the Godhead, is our Heavenly Father, and He, by His Son, Jesus, or Christ Jesus, created all things. Now, that's a formal statement. It's very stiff, but that's what we believe, and that's been carefully thought out, and you have all of the Bible text references. The second one is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, and the eternal Son of God is the only Savior from sin, and man's salvation is by grace through faith in Him. So we believe in Father and Son, first and second person of the Godhead. The third one, uh, third person is the Holy Spirit, is Christ's representative on earth and leads sinners to repentance and to obedience of all God's requirements. When someone joins the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we ask them, do they believe that? And we teach them why we believe that and we share that. Does it change their lives? That's the key. Does it change their lives? That teaching should transform lives. But oftentimes we don't know why and how that can happen. So that's what I'm going to talk about. These beliefs didn't come easy to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. One retired Seventh-day Adventist minister in 1940, that's not, well, that's a long time ago, but from the date of the beginning of our church's history, it's about 80 years after our church was organized, not quite 80, but close to it, denounced the doctrine of Trinity as, look what he said, a cruel heathen monstrosity, an impossible, absurd invention, a blasphemous burlesque. Wow. I'm not sure I know what that is. A bungling, absurd, irreverent caricature. 
That was an Adventist minister talking about one of the doctrines that we have. Between 1846 and 1866, the doctrine was uniformly rejected. The church was organized in 1861, I believe it was. And so it was uniformly rejected before the church was put together and early after it as well by virtually all Adventist writers as being either inconsistent, unscriptural, contrary to reason and plain common sense, unbelievable, unintelligible, contradictory, absurd, preposterous, pagan, papal pagan, and simply anti-Christian. That's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? How did something where the church felt so strongly against it ever become our first three doctrinal statements? It's an amazing story. Not a single voice disagreed with that sentiment, including Ellen White. In our hymn book, we sang today, Holy, Holy, Holy. Well, there's a verse in there that says, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Well, that's what you sang today. But when that hymn was put into the Adventist hymn book of this era we're talking about, it didn't say, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. It said, God over all who rules eternity. They just changed it. That's how strongly they felt about it. So why this great resistance against the Trinity, the first three doctrines that we have? Seventh-day Adventists clung to a literalist approach of the Bible. And many Seventh-day Adventists still do that. Um, and nowhere in Scripture can you find the word Trinity. It's just not to be found. It's not there. And so if it's not in the scriptures, then why do we teach it? Why do we make it a doctrine? So that was one reason. Another reason is the Trinity defies rational explanation. Have you ever tried to describe how it is that Jesus could be God and man at the same time? That's a little beyond the reach of the mind, isn't it? And how could a supernatural God die? Have you got an answer for that? How could it physically happen? Does it reach beyond where our minds can go? And so it's a little difficult. Who can understand it? So it didn't get received for those two reasons, but also it opens the mind to question other beliefs such as, and I mentioned that one, is our salvation valid if he didn't? Um, die on the cross? If he didn't, that means that he possessed an immortal soul. In other words, did uh, God die on the cross? And if he died on the cross, um, if he didn't die on the cross, did that mean he possessed an immortal soul? Did Jesus have an immortal soul? Did he die or not on the cross? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, if he did, then dying... Then, uh, then denying that we are born immortal would be difficult since we are made in his image, uh, teaching which the Bible denies. Are we immortal? Does Jesus have the same as we have, same kind of body as we have? Well, that's another point. In fact, such a belief would threaten a whole string of associated beliefs, a belief about death, we already mentioned, about judgment, about resurrection, 
and perhaps other indirect beliefs that anchor us to physical realities of this world, such as health and marriage, second coming, sanctuary, etc., etc., making the church kind of a spiritualized church. So this is a big doctrine that affects us in a lot of ways. Such a teaching would align us with a particular early Christian sect which stated that the Father and the Son were a single person. Is the Father and the Son a single person? Well, the church slowly did turn towards accepting the Trinity. In 1892, a book was republished in the Seventh throughout Seventh Adventism, a book published by written by Samuel T. Spear, The Doc, Bible Doctrine of the Trinity. And um, it favored Trinitarian views. A great educator, administrator, and general conference office officer, W.W. W. Prescott, worked for an amazing amount of time throughout the church, in the late 1880s began to urge the church toward believing in the Trinity. Later, he was denounced for having introduced this deadly heresy in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The first Trinitarian statements from the pen of Ellen White dated to 1897 and 1898. In those statements, she said that the Holy Spirit is the what? Third person of the Godhead. That also appeared later in Desire of Ages. She stated that in Christ is what? Life, original, unborrowed, underived. He didn't get life from somebody else. He's God. Right? Ellen White's statement took a huge step towards moving the church toward acceptance of Trinitarianism. Do most Christian churches believe in the Trinity? Most do. Seventh-day Adventists in the early times were unsure of that. James White, Joseph Bates were, um, I think it was, was it the uh, Christian Connection was the name of the church they came from, and that church denied the Trinity. So they came out of that background into Adventism, and so this doctrine had a hard time finding residence in the Seventh-day Adventist church. From 1851, look at this, to 1938, Seventh-day Adventists held only two articles of faith. If you wanted to join the church, you didn't have to go through 28, just two. For how long a time? 87 years? This was one. You had to believe the commandments of God. This was two. You had to have the faith of Jesus, which broadly they meant you had to believe in the New Testament. After the organization of the church in 1861, people desiring membership into the Seventh-day Adventist Church were asked to sign a pledge stipulating that we, the undersigned, hereby associate ourselves together as a church, taking the name Seventh-day Adventist, coveting to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's all. Didn't have to... 13 vows, you didn't have to, 28 beliefs. That was it. That was it. In 1872, Uriah Smith, the editor of the Review and Herald, he wrote and published a list. This is the first time you have more than that previous, just those two things, of 25 fundamental principles. He kind of drew this together himself. It was the first detailed presentation of Adventist doctrines published by the church 
and had ha and it has been uh, repeatedly revised in the ensuing years. Ensuing years, its preamble, the doctrine, the document strongly disclaimed any intention of providing an authoritative or normative expression of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. In other words, in most of the history of this church, there has been a real strong passion not to make a list of doctrines because they were afraid that once you do that, then you become like the other Christian churches. You have creeds, and you become more loyal to the creeds than you are to the Bible. And they didn't want that to happen in Seventh-day Adventism. So there was a resistance against even getting this list of 28 uh, doctrines that we have today for the longest time in the church's history. There was no synopsis of the Adventist faith uh, officially between the years 1914 and 1931. Finally, in 1931, in the yearbook for the church, a completely revised synopsis of our beliefs, and the Trinitarianism was affirmed in that, but not formally approved. In the next year, it came out in the church manual, where it has appeared ever since. And finally, 14 years after that, it became official. This just misses my lifetime by one year. And we're talking about about over 80 years, almost 90 years, the church went without any formal belief system. Just two simple statements. Did you know that? Anyway, in 1946, the church officially adopted, through general conference vote, that no revision of the statement of fundamental beliefs as it now appears in the manual shall be made at any time except at a general conference conference session. General conference would determine what we believe only there and every year that, that they had a general conference well, all, many times they review the doctrinal statements and they, are, they have a committee that constantly reviews that to decide if there are any changes that need to be made. Prior to the 1980 general conference, major revisions were made to the fundamental beliefs making them less exclusive less negative, less judgmental, and less legalistic. That was the intent. Making them more grace and gospel-oriented. The church was redefining itself as being more engaged in the world, more caring and serving its fellow man, and not here for simply one reason, to escape to heaven, which had been the actually stated purpose of one of the editors of the Review and Herald. Our business is not doing what Carol does week after week, helping people. Our business is to get them ready for the kingdom. We could care less about what happens in this world. Our world is in second world, you know, the one coming. And now, in 1980, that was changing. The church is now becoming more interested in our day-to-day -day lives as well. Um, <clears throat> we accepted more orthodox views of the Trinity, of Christology, and science of salvation, soteriology, were included. The church, that for the first half of its history was very resistant to establishing a creed, now had taken a huge step towards defining what Adventists stood for. That's a brief history about doctrine and the Seventh-day Adventist story of doctrine. Did you know that one before?
why I'm saying that is so you'll have that background, but also to kind of introduce our topic today, the Trinity. It had a very long history becoming accepted in the church. Okay, beliefs do have consequences. Adam and Eve believed, but they believed a lie. What was the consequences? And so the church needs to have beliefs. They are important to have beliefs. The Apostle Paul explained cause and effect of belief. God provides plenty of evidence to believe, even invisible things. He talks about this in Romans chapter 1. God revealed even invisible things about himself, and Paul even mentions the Trinity. He has given to even pagans this understanding. He has communicated that to all mankind, including the wicked, providing enough revelation to produce faith and salvation. Paul says in chapter 1 of Romans, they abandoned that information, they let go of God, and they became, and look at those words, do beliefs have consequences? Look at the words. And these are right out of Romans. That's what they became. So beliefs are a hedge against that. And that's why the church has belief systems and to protect us from all of those things that are listed there. That's why we have beliefs. So what's the good news about the Trinity? First, I'm going to tell you that there are laws. And we know this from psychology, but there's also this writing from Ellen White that says it real clearly, as well as Paul in 2 Corinthians, he said, um, it is a law, both of the intellectual and the spiritual nature, that by, that what? By beholding, we become changed. Now, what we put in our minds, what we see, changes us. Therefore, all of our doctrines have the effect of changing us. For good or for bad, they can change us. And the effect is, if you don't, if it's not for good, then all those things that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 could come true. Otherwise, you could be made into the image of God. It is a law of the mind that it gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is trained to dwell. That's just continuing on that. The way we think of God determines our beliefs and actions. There are several ways you can look at God. Polytheism. There are many gods everywhere. Religion is confusing when you believe that way. It is chaotic. Endlessly plagued with worry, fear, rituals, anxiety. There's no peace. Go anywhere around the world where they have that kind of faith. Polytheism. Spirituality. They can't be intimate with a god that they fear and that they don't know. And that changes all the time. How can you have intimacy? So if you embrace polytheism, these are some of the uh, outcomes. What effect does this have upon them? In citizens and in society, in the way they relate to each other. If you believe in polytheism, how do you treat one another? The way you worship plays out in the way you deal with God and the way you deal with your fellow man. In families, it definitely affects the way our marriages work and parenting and the extended family. And if we had time, we can actually go through and talk about those things, the way it affects. But you could come up with those on your own. And in our lives and in our witness for Christ. 
So, if you have a view of God, like the pagans do, where God is everywhere, and confusing, chaotic, you have worry, fear, endless rituals, anxiety, no peace, it's going to affect all parts of your life. Here's another kind of polytheism. We think that it's only pagans that have polytheism. There's a new group of people called postmoderns and those that are after them as well, millennials. Now, we say they're polytheistic. Well, that's simply because they're pretty open to anything. You know what I'm talking about? These are the people... Oh, I don't want to say what I was going to say. <laughs> they are younger generation. And they go around and they don't have what they consider the hang-ups of the older generation. They're just open to all kinds of stuff. They just soak it in. And uh, to them, God is user-defined. They believe in an eclectic idea. Religion is relative, whatever works for the moment. Spirituality, there's no depth because you don't go deep. You stay on the surface at all times, going no higher than themselves. What effect does this have upon the way they relate to society and the way they relate to each other in marriage, parenting, and as believers in their lives and witness? The way we see God affects us in all kinds of ways. There is no bigger relationship, more important relationship in our life than our relationship to God. And we will be a copy of the way we see God in the way we deal with all relationships. Now there's another group called monotheists, one God. They believe in one God. There are two major groups of people comprising, oh, at least a quarter of the planet, probably more, or maybe a third of the planet population. Um, they see God as one. And in those individuals, religion for them is absolute conformity to doctrine. You go look at the Jews. Well, if you are a fundamental Jew, if you're a loyal Jew, so, you know there are different kinds of Jews. There are Jews that are just Jews in name. There's others that feel real strongly about it. And um, <coughs> Muslims, there are different kinds of Muslims too. But if you are a firm Muslim and a firm Jew, your religion is very demanding, very strict, very controlling, to the point of killing people that disagree with you. You're aware of that, aren't you? What kind of spirituality? It's empty, making great pretense, but they don't know God. So what effect would this have on them in city, citizens and society? It closes it down. In families and marriage, it's submission. And in believers, they are very active in making converts and controlling their every behavior. So let's get to Christians. This is where we're at. We see God as three who are one. At creation, there were three gods at work. The very first words that you read in the book of Genesis, verse 1, chapter 1, there are three gods. In the beginning, Elohim. That's the plural of God. It's not a singular. It's a plural. Elohim is plural. More than one God. That's the first word of, in, in the New Testament. Let us, later on in Genesis, make man in our image. Is us in plural and, and our singular? Is it singular? It's plural. Right. 
<clears throat> Here you look at this. At creation, the Bible says the spirit was moving on the face of the earth, and it was involved in creating. And Paul, in the book of Hebrews, says that Jesus was there as well. All three of them were involved in creation. Um, plural name for God, us and our, and the other Bible passages say they were all involved. <clears throat> this same plurality of God is seen all throughout Scripture. In Psalms 45, verse 7, Therefore God, thy God, is the way it's written in 45, 7. And it's almost like God talking about another God. Well, that's what it is. In the New Testament, we know what it's supposed to mean because Paul comes in in Hebrews chapter 1, which is a great book about Christ, and he declares that it's the Father talking to the Son. There's a three-part formula in several places in the New Testament, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's how we baptize people in the name of the Father. That's the Trinity. We baptize them in the name of the Trinity. Why is it so important to baptize people in the name of the Trinity? I'll talk about that in a little bit. If I don't, remind me. Jesus referred to it, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be what? One, even as we are one in his great pastoral prayer for the church, John 17. So it's very clear that the plurality is seen through Scripture. God is more than one. In other ways, it's seen too. There's a whole bunch of Old Testament texts. You can look at them, Psalm 68, 102, Isaiah 40, Joel 2, Isaiah 45 and 43. You look at the text in, in the Old Testament books, and then you look at uh, what uh, the New Testament writers did with those Old Testament texts in the New Testament, and you can find out that in the Old Testament where it says Yahweh, the New Testament writers are saying that's Jesus. So Yahweh in the Old Testament by the New Testament writers was Jesus. So Jesus was involved all through the Old Testament. All through it. Genesis chapter 1 says that there are three of them involved. We only see God. We think naturally Father. But God is plural. There was a way to write singular God, but they chose plural. The way the New Testament writers use Old Testament texts clearly show they believe Jesus to be the Yahweh of the Old Testament. The prophets confess this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. And what's the next one? Mighty God. Prior to his incarnation, the Apostle Paul claimed Jesus possessed the form of God. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from where? There are no limits on Jesus. No time limits whatsoever. More prophet confessions. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Did I already give that one to you? Oh, that's a repeat, isn't it? Oh, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I've already done that. I'm, I'm adding Psalms 102. That's I'll get caught up with myself here. Psalms 102. The statement is about Yahweh's creative power and eternity recorded 
and it is applied to Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. Isaiah 44, this song of praise that heaven sings to Yahweh for his redemption is applied to the worship of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Huh. In Paul's argument in Philippians chapter 2, he's trying to make a point about unity and he's talking about how important it is for to be humble. And he then chooses to use, as his greatest example of that, Jesus, who, in the image of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, surrendered all of that to become a man. He's using that as a masterful approach to show humility. What, there can be no more greater humility than that, right? So, again, another statement affirming the Trinity. John chapter 16. Says, go, I, I, Jesus, came forth from the Father, and I am come into the world again. I leave the world, and I go to the Father. You remember this encounter he had with Philip? Lord, show us the Father. Jesus said, I have I been with you so long, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Has And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? I am in the Father, and the Father in me, the Father that dwelleth in me. That's the one I speak of. He doeth the works. I am in the Father, the Father in me. John 8, uh, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, he didn't say, I was. He said, I am. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that he was older than Abraham. It's a statement of his divinity. Do you remember what the God at the bush, the burning bush, said to Moses on the side of Mount Sinai? He said, I am the I am. He's claiming a divine title. So, you can see, even in the, uh, uh, in the genealogy, God with us, Emmanuel. And in the first chapter of John, in the beginning was the Word. And by the way, you read in chapter 1 of, of Genesis, and God said. So who's that Word? Are you getting it? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and what does it say here? The Word was God, and we beheld him. It's talking about Jesus. So John is saying the Word, all the way through the Old Testament, is Jesus. All those words that we heard, they were Jesus speaking. The Spirit was moving, Jesus was speaking, they were all together there in the Old Testament. Okay, well you've seen several of these things, but they just go on and on. For in him dwelleth the fullness of God bodily. Under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And we already got that. Okay. What I, I mentioned this. In Genesis chapter 1, Elohim is followed by a singular verb, created. The baptismal formula in, John, in, in Matthew 28, baptize them in the name, which is singular, and then it gives us the plural. That's the best way to describe God. The singular who are plural, or the plural who are singular. Either way, that's the only, and that's the only ones that are like that. There's that unity. 2,500 years later, God confronted Moses at the burning bush 
with the instructions that he was to lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses asked, what is your name? He wasn't questioning who God was, but the scholars have looked at what he said and said, it's more likely what he was asking, are you really able to carry out what you're telling me to do? (laughs) After all, you know, it's been a long time since we've heard from you. Are you able to do this? And what did God respond by? He responded by saying, I am that I am. I could do all things. I make reality. I am all you need. I am the one who always is. From then on, from that time on, God's personal name became Yahweh, which all of that, that's what that means, that phrase, I am that I am. And this became the great Shema where Moses, when he read the law the second time to his people, he starts out by saying, Hear, O Israel, listen. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The most well-known passage among Jews is that passage. It's quoted by them daily, yet they fail to understand its meaning. The three, the Trinity, are one. They work together as one. Those who had absolutely no need for one another, being omnipotent, being omniscient, being omnipresent, they chose to become one. That's the God that's introduced in Genesis chapter 1. That's the God that created us. That's the God whose image we are made in. People that don't need each other but choose to come together and be one. Oneness in every way, and yet fully capable of themselves individually. It's a choice. Submitting, limiting ourselves for the sake of what we believe in. Now, I grew up in a church that trained me pretty carefully to believe that the most important thing in life is truth. And therefore, you go through those 28 truths, those 28 beliefs, And you teach truth and you change people's lives. And you bring them salvation. It doesn't work that way. The true essence of divinity is relationship. This is how God introduced himself at the very beginning. The relationship. And this is how we really know if we are righteous. Jesus tried to reach out always to people that were against him. Because that's his nature. That's who he is by definition. Can Satan do that? It's not his nature. This is the nature of God. He wants, we're made in his image. He wants us to be like that. Our capacity for oneness. Revolving around questions of equality, humility, submission, and service. Not hierarchy and structure. This is what the church is supposed to be. Unfortunately, like most churches... Uh, it's so easy for a church, including our church, to slip into structure and slip into hierarchy. Things all Christians struggle with. Uh, Jesus' plea to his father was this, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that's the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit too, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. If we can demonstrate 
this thing of trinity, this thing of working together, this thing in a marriage of being together, like you two down there that are hugging each other right now, you know, if you can be successful in doing that, if we can do that, we change the world. Uh, just being godlike. Not necessarily teaching all kinds of abstract truth, but teaching relationship. And so that all these truths find their center in relationship. Whenever unity isn't present, God's enemy is present. He stirs up the most anger. When Jesus suggested that he was God, he stirred them up to want to stone him. How do we see God? So Christians see God as three who are one. In religion, it requires great patience and tolerance and selflessness and understanding and growth to be that way. That's what God wants from us. Yet producing in them the greatest freedom, variety, and uniqueness and godlikeness. You don't see that in those other churches. The monotheists, you know, polytheists. You don't see those kind of traits. They don't have to. They work by force, by control. Each is challenged to become less so that others can be more. That's who the God is in Genesis. That is the God who spoke to Moses on the mountain, and that is the God who gave the Ten Commandments. To work together as equals, respecting, understanding, trusting, and loving one another. The spiritual benefit, they are experiencing God, becoming one with him. What effect does this have upon citizens and society? They are drawn to it. They want it. They like it. You don't have to go out and put out handbills. They come. As families, marriage and parenting, oh, it's challenging. It's very hard to be godlike, really godlike. Imagine what it is like to be the father and have to kind of consult with the son and consult with the Holy Spirit and vice versa and vice versa. It takes more work. It's more challenging, but it produces rich rewards. And so if you find yourself being really hard-nosed about teachings, you've missed the point. All teaching is supposed to be about God. It's supposed to reveal and glorify God. That's what God, Jesus sent us out to do. And if we can't do it, we've got the wrong understanding. Now, I believe our Seventh-day Adventist doctrines are all right. They're just not presented properly by grace, righteousness by faith, and the character of God. That's the way you present them. And how does it show in believers' lives and in their lives and witness? Well, people come to the Lord. You're going to find, if, you can, if we can demonstrate God-likeness in our teachings, no matter what they are, two reactions. People will flood to see you, and Satan will just get very angry. Very, very angry. You'll see both of that happening. What happened? Was that the end? I guess it's the end. And they all said, Amen. <laughs> I can't believe it. There's a lot more. It's not there, apparently. I put it somewhere else. But I, I took mercy on you. Are you seeing my point? Is it, is it heresy, what I'm talking about? No. Is it learning a different way to say things? Yeah. You know, what I have found in my own personal life in doing this, that it's really easy to see where truth is at when you do it this way. 
You don't have to think about a lot of technology and a lot of technical stuff. You just look and see where the relationships are at. What is this? What effect does this have on relationship? What effect does this have on whatever? And if it, you know, and if the relationship issue doesn't come through, there's air there somehow. And you know right away. So you don't have to think about it all. You have to be a theologian. You just have to be an expert on relationship. And God gives us that naturally. Really important to think about that. So my goal, what I want to do in a series that's going to go for a long, long time, and I've only given you the first half of this. There's a second half coming. But what I want to do is I want to take a look at every one of these doctrines and say, what does it teach about God? And what does it teach about relationship of God? Relationships. And if we could learn to develop that understanding and those words, and it's hard to do that, to see it differently and develop the vocabulary that matches what our thoughts are, if we can learn to do that, people, when we talk to them, their, light, their mind will just light up and they say, that's right. It makes sense now. And they come around. We don't do any harm to the doctrine. In matter of fact, we elevate the doctrine if we can learn to do it this way. And you can tell anybody, people that are in any church believing any different kind of a doctrine and whatever allegiance they have to their own church, you talk to them this way, you will not make enemies unless they have really rejected the Lord. You, not, you will not make enemies. They will respond favorably because they are looking for this too. They want to see this. This is the acid test of what basic Christianity is all about. It's a difficult challenge to see this. I don't know why it is, but it is. And we have to go back and we have to put the pieces together in the right way so that we can see that. So what I want to do is I want to go through the various different doctrines and we're going to be looking for where is righteousness by faith? How does this teach about God? How does this teach about relationships like God wants us to have? The kind of relationship Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it'll put a whole new life and a whole new meaning to all of our doctrines. That's why I said the good news about God, the Trinity. Father in heaven, we are on this journey. We can't go on it without your help. We've been here today and we've looked at this. We've only opened the door just a little bit, but we can see that you are there and we really want the story that we tell people to be about you rather than some technical thing are some texts coming up against other texts and it becomes just battering back and forth. We want people to be able to see and hear you. And then they just come and they just are drawn and the church becomes alive. This is what you sent us out to do. And so guide us as we try to do that, as we open the Bible and try to understand Thank you for everybody that's here today. May your blessing be upon each of us. May we take time to think of you, seriously think of you, every single day, who you are, how wonderful you are, how unique and special you are. So in doing that, we can become and change by that thought, and that belief can transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.